of James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of God. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here in my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Father God, we, we come before your word and we pray that as we continue to worship by responding to that word, that you would be pleased to quicken that word to our hearts and cause us to be uh, both hearers and doers of it. I pray that Satan would not snatch the seed from the ground, but that it would grow into a harvest to your glory. I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach your word, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, as you can see from your outlines, today's uh, topic is on dealing with uh, prejudice, and it really is kind of a tough uh, topic to handle because... Uh, we can recognize prejudice in other people, but it's very hard to recognize prejudice in our own lives. And uh, I have witnessed this uh, over time in other people's lives. You can see the prejudice written all over them, sometimes minorities. Um, uh, I've seen some minority people saying, everybody's a racist. If you're white, you're a racist. And, and there's many different things going back and forth, and they have no idea that they've been engaging in prejudice themselves. It's very hard sometimes to to uh, get a handle on. So we tend to be blind to our own uh, prejudices. And so when we read this chapter, we say, wow, that's really bad, you know, the way they were treating that poor person. And we don't apply it broadly to ourselves. But James is using one illustration, actually two illustrations. We'll get to that next week. He's using one illustration that we'll look at this week. And then he broadly applies it and says, any kind of prejudice should be ruled out in our lives unless it is defined by the word of God, verse 9. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, the word for partiality there, and there's another form of the same word in verse 1, uh, literally means to receive the face. Now, in our modern English, that doesn't make a lot of sense to people. What does that mean, to receive the face? Uh, but 
what it was, it was designed as a legal language to cause judges to not look at people's faces, as it were, and say, you know, I like this guy, I'm going to give him justice, but I don't think I'm going to give full justice to this other person. They were to be blind, as it were, to who the person was and deal with the issues as issues. And that's why in the ancient world, uh, and in modern times too, you see justice pictured as being a person, sometimes a lady justice, you know, with... Uh, a blindfold over the eyes. Uh, they were not to look at the face. But James is using this in a non-judicial sense, a non-legal sense. So I was trying to think, what are some illustrations that I can get across what it means to receive the face and not the person and the kind of hurt that can come into people's lives when we're, we can't get past the externals and uh, we're not dealing with them as individuals. But I, I, I think I came up with one that should be... Um, uh, should be adequate. How many here have heard of Dave Reaver's uh, testimony? Not very many. Okay, well, this was a, a guy that <clears throat> had really been messed up in the military in a, uh, I don't know if it was napalm or whatever it was, but boy, does he look terribly. It looks very ugly on the, on, on the video. He was lying in the hospital and just very concerned. What's my wife going to think about me? And to make matters worse, the person who was sitting in the bed next to him had also been uh, burned extremely badly. And I forget now if it was his girlfriend or if it was his wife, but the, the girlfriend, let's say, came in, and when she saw how messed up his face was, she took her ring off, threw it on the bed, and says, I cannot live with a person so scarred as you are. And the guy was just devastated. Well... Dave Reaver, you know, he's going through in his mind, you know, wondering how his wife's going to react. He's pretty sure she's going to react better, but he's got all kinds of doubts going through his head and uh, very apprehensive. Well, she walked in, came over to the bed, gave him a kiss and told him that she loved him. And uh, he said something to the effect, oh, honey, I didn't know if you could love me with how ugly I look. And she laughed and says, oh, Dave, you were never good looking anyway. <laughs> And uh, I thought, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what was going on here. Here was one lady who was receiving the face and ignoring the person that was behind the face, whereas Dave Reaver's wife, even though his externals had changed, she was receiving him as a person. She loved him. And he says the reason for the difference was because his relationship with his wife had been developed in the church rather than the backseat of a Chevy. In other words, it wasn't externals that drove his relationships with, with uh, his wife. And so it was an enduring relationship. And James says we need to not be driven by externals either. In our relationships with one another, many times we are caught up with externals like race, class distinctions, looks, culture, intelligence, clothing. In fact, um, I found out uh, even the kind of glasses that you wear shows whether you're in the in crowd. Apparently, I'm not in the in crowd in one circle that I visited that uh, because these are not preppy uh, glasses. But there's so many externals that drive people, you know, in terms of what they think is cool, who will they what relationship, what person can be invited into a clique, and things like that. And James wants us to have relationships that are founded on far more enduring principles. Our faith must govern our relationships. Let me repeat that. Our faith must govern, and it should. If there really is the reality of that faith engendered in us, it should govern our relationships one with another. And that's why verse 1 
uh, says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. We're going to be seeing later, it's such a mockery of that faith. When He came down and He received us, who was so different, who was so ugly, and God received us, entered into fellowship with us, and we rejoice in that faith, he says, you hold that faith and you hold prejudice, it's utterly incompatible. It's a mockery to the faith that God has ushered us into. And um, so, if you are uh, uh, wanting to be thinking of illustrations of that, the first illustration he gives is receiving the face. And you can just put down there, Dave Reaver, and you'll probably remember you know, how good he felt about the fact that she looked past the externals. Now, that, did that mean she was blind to the differences in him, obviously not, but she still loved him, despite those differences that had come about. Now, James uses a second word to describe prejudice in verse 4. He says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves? And the Greek word for partiality is a different one than the word that we've just looked at. Uh, my margin has, have you not differentiated among yourselves? And here's some other uh, version renderings. Do you not make distinctions among yourselves? Are you not discriminating among your own? Are you not drawing distinctions in your minds? Uh, James says, basically, they've lumped people into categories. Here's some people that are over here, and we're making another distinction. Here's some over here. They've put labels on people, and they've lumped different people into those, into those groupings. And James says, uh, we ought not to label. Now, let me illustrate what it means to be labeled. A number of years ago, a pastor friend of mine was uh, invited to the Mayor Morgan's. Um, he had a pastoral council that was involved in helping them to make decisions on various issues. And he had been invited to go to that. And on this one time, they were going, doing some problem solving, just like they had been for a number of, of meetings. But this time, Everybody wore a label on their forehead. They were still supposed to get through all of the same work, but they were tr to treat each other consistent with the label that was on the other person's head. Now, they didn't know what was on their own head, but they could see what the label was on everybody else's. And so one person had the label leader, another had the label follower, and another had, uh, let's see, invisible, and another had incompetent, I think, put on his head. And it was just a, a, a silly exercise that they were going through. They were supposed to get their work done. And every time that the invisible person was trying to make suggestions like he normally did, they just ignored him or cut him off and started talking as if he wasn't even there. And you can imagine how the incompetent was handled. And even though it was a, a silly, stupid exercise, there were a couple of people there that got really angry, got really bent out of shape. It's like, hey, guys, it's just an exercise, okay? But people don't like to be labeled. It depersonalizes us. And yet, how frequently do we put labels on other people? Many times unconsciously. For example, this may not be true of you, but when you're thinking about somebody uh, from North Omaha, what immediately pops into your mind? What immediately pops into many people's mind is that he's black, which may not necessarily be the case, that he's black, uh, doesn't care, take care, very good care of his property, you know, probably the front uh, uh, screen door is hanging partially off of its hinges. He's a Democrat, you know. Um, well, there's a whole number of different stereotypes, you know. Probably he's dangerous, you know. There's a lot of high crime there. And if somebody who lives in North Omaha does not fit into that stereotype, that is, is put, there's misunderstanding. 
because many times they're treated still, even unconsciously when they don't want to, they're treated as if they're in that stereo, uh, uh, stereotype um, label. We sometimes use the labels blue collar and white collar, which can be a helpful generalization, but when we overgeneralize, we ignore the individual differences that can occur uh, between people within that category. We put people into a box that maybe they don't belong in. And by the way, poor people can stereotype against rich people too. They do it all the time. And James's point is that in the church, we are believers, we are members of the same family, the royal family of God, and even though labels can sometimes be helpful, it's important that we not lose sight of uh, the person that is in the label. So those are two ways of describing prejudice, receiving the face and labeling. Now let's just quickly look at some of the kinds of prejudice that uh, James brings up. In verses 2 through 7, uh, James is obviously dealing with class distinctions. Now, he was not saying that we should not be able to recognize who's a rich person and who's a poor person. He's not saying you can't use labels. He's use la using labels himself. He's saying, you know, there's rich people, here's uh, poor people. But it's what you do with those labels that makes all the difference into the w in the world. Uh, verse 3 says, The problem comes when you give preferential treatment to the other but to the one while you ignore the other. You hang around one. You don't hang around the other. You talk to the one. You won't talk to the other person. Uh, take a look at verse 3. <clears throat> he says, And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes. So there's the first difference. You pay attention to certain groups, and it results in favoritism. And it says, And say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. So the rich is here, the poor is there, and there's a big difference between the here and, and the there. You want to be close to the one, you want to be in the good graces of the one, you really don't care about the other. Or if you see that poor person as a ministry project, maybe you do allow him to sit next to you. Here, you can sit by my footstool, but the person feels demeaned in the process of your ministering to him. Uh, he feels like he's a second-class uh, citizen. And I have literally seen this uh, happen in America where there was a... A guy, I was just amazed, uh, who was ministering to a street person. And you could tell he was just so uncomfortable. He didn't look like he wanted to shake this guy's hands, but he did shake his hands. But it just looked like he could hardly wait to go to the bathroom to wash his hands. And when the guy went to sit in the couch, he said, oh, sit over here. And he had him sit in a hardback chair, probably so he could wash it off afterwards. And you can understand where he didn't want to have to have a, a cleaning bill, you know, on his sofa. But his purpose was to evangelize this person. And just imagine the message that that person had. That person's probably not hearing a whole lot about the gospel. What he's hearing loudly and clearly is, you're not comfortable with my being in this place. You don't like me. And this message really is a farce. That's what he's hearing. And... Uh, uh, it was uh, it, it was an uncomfortable thing to to witness. Well, that's exactly what verse two is talking about when it speaks of the poor man in filthy clothes, not ragged clothes, filthy clothes. Let me read from the dictionary. Uh, uh, the Greek dictionary says the emphasis of huparos is not upon clothes being ragged, as one might expect in the case of a poor man, but upon the clothes being filthy. And thus the basis of greater offense. So this guy's homeless, no doubt has not had a bath in a while. And 
James is saying, we got to invite him to sit in our pew next to our family. You got to be kidding. I might have to change my suit and get it dry cleaned afterwards. And James's point is, it's worth the dry cleaning bill to see the transformation that your love and your ministry can have in that person's life. He's saying you've got to, you've got to deal with those externals and get over them. I remember in Ethiopia, my parents um, inviting Ethiopians into the living room and uh, having them over for, for coffee or... Uh, I, I don't remember what all they... They were in there quite a, a few times. And I would see the lice sometimes crawling on, on the heads and onto the, onto the sofa. Now, I can put up with fleas, but lice, I do not like lice. But that's part of the cost of ministry. And so after the people left, yes, we would delouse and spray down the place. But while they were there, you acted as if lice is the least of your concerns in the world. You love them. You're receiving them in the Lord. Now, I did see, and I may have misjudged them too, because you can't judge motives, but I did see other missionaries who I thought as a kid really had you know, a condescending attitude sometimes to people who wouldn't invite them into their homes or if they did and they ate, you know, maybe they got the poor plates and, uh, you know, the whites got the, the black plates, but there was a sense of condescension. Now, it may have been a misjudgment, but that's one illustration that he gives of uh, how we can be how we can be prejudiced. Verses 10 through 11 show how Christians can stigmatize some sins and let other sins go completely unnoticed. We'll come back to some of the intervening uh, verses later, but notice the odd illustration that he gives in verses 10 through 11. He says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, have you become a transgressor of the law? Here's the strange part. Why does James have to convince these people that murder is just as much a violation of the law as adultery is? And that's the import of what he is saying there. He's trying to convince them that murder is just as much a violation of the law as adultery is. It may seem strange because we, you know, we treat murder as being a pretty serious. We might think he should have said, you know, just because you haven't murdered anybody doesn't mean you haven't violated the law of God. Adultery is a violation of the law as well, but he doesn't. He says murder is. Now, the reason for that is because there were in that day some socially acceptable things. Actually, it was something that was expected of people, where there was uh, um, a murder was seen as being uh, honorable in that day. Let me illustrate just from recent history. Uh, one of Iowa's referendums, this was back in the 1992 uh, elections, <clears throat> one of the referendums that they had on the ballot <clears throat> was whether or not to take a law off the books that um, prevented anybody that had engaged in a duel from serving in office. And even to have that referendum, it makes you wonder, were there people still alive, you know, that had dueled? You know what a duel is, right? It, 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 200 years ago, when somebody offended you, you were duty-bound, according to that code, you were duty-bound to defend your pride, and you had the shame of cowardice and admitting that you were guilty if you did not uh, uh, challenge them to a duel. 
And so you would challenge the person to a duel. There would be a second that you would have and they would have one just to make sure you played fair and you'd go out into the field and you're back to back and you would walk so many paces away that you'd turn around and shoot at each other. I mean, it was really smart. <laughs> uh, and But the idea was it was trial by conflict. Okay, and that's a very ancient thing. They had that all the time, trial by conflict. And they thought that <clears throat> they didn't realize God also punishes stupidity. But they thought that uh, whoever lived was the innocent party. <clears throat> and uh, so there was tons of dueling. One of our founding fathers died in a duel. It was very common practice. And many states eventually outlawed the practice of dueling. But if you won the duel, you were the hero. You had vindicated your honor. This was a good thing. And yet the Bible would have described it absolutely as murder. And yet these people didn't recognize it as murder at all. Well, the same thing was true back in, back in his day. Uh, these people were apparently coming down hard on adulterers, but they failed to come down hard on the kind of murder that was socially acceptable. Now, we find that shocking. It's just like, boy, it seems so backwards. How come he says it that way? But that's because every age has its own socially acceptable sins. Every age has uh, things that are offensive to them that are not offensive in another age and vice versa. And what we need to realize is that all sin is offensive to God, but all sin can also be forgiven by God. And so God wants us to be looking at uh, sin as sin. And in verse 13, he wants mercy to triumph over all sins. Look at verses 12 through 13. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do we treat certain sinners in a different category from other sinners? Are we prejudiced in this area? Well, let's just examine and see. When homosexuals are converted and become members of churches, many times they are stigmatized and people kind of shun them. In fact, that's been a cause for many people leaving a, a church. <clears throat> They're acting as if the sin of homosexuality is the unpardonable sin. And it becomes a, a sin where there is a, a prejudicial treatment. This sin, we won't forgive. This sin, we will and you might think, you know, this doesn't apply to you, but actually it does because I witnessed to homosexuals. And let's just say that there's a homosexual becomes converted. God causes him to hate his sin and to want to flee from his sin. And he is committed to being sanctified and to pursuing righteousness. And he comes into this building here and he takes membership vows. And he vows to follow after the Lord uh, the rest of his life. And I ask you, are you willing to support and to accept this brother in the Lord are you going to raise your hand? I mean, it brings it right down to the, the rubber meets the road. It's not an abstract question because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul mentions several homosexuals, uh, former homosexuals, who had been washed, who had been cleansed, who were now new creatures in Christ. And uh, there are many applications that could be given. I've been in churches where divorce is treated as the unforgivable sin. Now, they won't say it's the unforgivable sin, but that's the way they act. The divorcee becomes the black sheep of the congregation, even though the divorce may not have been his fault, or if it was his fault, he has repented of it and has sought to be reconciled, and yet because there's the divorce there, they just feel like they, nobody, nobody receives them. How many here have read Hawthorne's uh, The Scarlet Letter? Any people? 
<coughs> it's um, a story about a lady that caught in adultery and, you know, was branded with an A uh, to mark her for life as an adulteress. By the way, I think Hawthorne totally misrepresented the, the Puritans. I, I don't think it was a fair uh, presentation of them at all. But just as an illustration, some people in the congregation sometimes feel like they've got, been branded like that. Let's say that there's a person who's been caught in some gross sin. And they have not repented of it. They've been excommunicated. God beats up on them. They, they say, they cry uncle and say, okay, Lord, I, I, I receive your discipline. I want to be restored. They're restored back into the church. But what frequently happens is that the church doesn't talk about things. And so here's this person back in the congregation. The elders know what's transpired, but the people don't. And so they're uncomfortable. You know, do we say anything about the past sin? We know that he's been restored by the elders, but they just don't know what to do. And so the discomfort, it's not necessarily that they're shunning them. The discomfort makes the person feel like they are totally shunned. Now, Jay Adams says the way we should treat people like that is like the prodigal son. You put on a big feast. You, you celebrate the restoration of this person. You talk about this person has been involved in this sin. He has repented of it. Here's the things. He has put into his life to put hedges around his life. We're receiving him back. We want all of you to give him the right hand of fellowship. And now, because it's been aired, it's out in the open, and there is no pride, you know, that's going to be getting in the way. The people can fully affirm this individual, and they can go on with life. But um, many times, we fail to recognize that every one of us, there but for the grace of God, we would go. That we are a brand plucked from the fire. And that we need to have humility when we're dealing with the sins of other people. It can be a form of prejudice. Now, this is not to say that God does not draw distinctions or that we should be naive or that we cannot take precautions, you know, when there is a person who has a besetting sin. It does not mean, for example, that, um, let's say a person has a... Uh, you know, a very communicable disease that he cannot be, what, what's it called in the old isolation, right? I mean, when I was a, a child, anytime we got uh, a communicable disease, there was quarantine, maybe the word, quarantine, isolation. And so there's no reason that there cannot be that kind of uh, isolation. People say, well, that would be prejudice. Uh, like, for example, treating uh, AIDS and things like that, saying, no, an AIDS, uh, a person with AIDS cannot be in certain types of... Um, uh, of functions. And I would say, no, any prejudice that the Bible allows, we are supposed to allow as well. For example, let me give you an example of, of prejudice. Um, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy, it says that one of the qualifications for an elder is that he has to be the husband of one wife. If he's polygamous, he cannot be an elder. Now, is that prejudiced? Well, absolutely, yes, it is. But it's a God-defined prejudice. Okay, it's biblically defined prejudice. And we ought not to be going against that and say, oh, we ought to be kind to these people. Well, yes, sure, we ought to be kind. And there were polygamous people who were in the church. Read First Timothy passage that rules it out for elders. It implies that the members were polygamous. When we were in Ethiopia, there were people who uh, had married multiple wives. And, you know, once they became Christians, if they did it, they'd be excommunicated, you know, be under discipline. But they had to, they had to bring in and they had to support their wives. And uh, so that's the, the way it was in that early culture. There was no discrimination within the congregation, but there was on an eldership level. Let me give you another example. If I were to commit adultery, I would be removed from office. And just because I've repented of my 
adultery does not mean I can be reinstituted into the office. And you say, well, that's discrimination. Yes, it is, but it's biblically authorized discrimination. So we've got we to keep those kinds of distinctions in our minds uh, as well. Uh, <clears throat> but the point is, God lays down the distinction, not us, and we need to be ever so careful. We do not make people in the church feel like second-class citizens because, for example, they've had a child out of wedlock or they've been forgiven of socially unacceptable sins. If God has forgiven the sinner, who are we to make them feel miserable over it? And I'm very thankful in this congregation we've got that spirit. You know, we've got a spirit that really welcomes people and uh, seeks to minister to them in that way. Now, in your outline, I have asked you to find examples of prejudice in your own life because I don't want this to just be an academic exercise. I want you to write down, or at least in your head, record what are the areas that I need to be growing in. Uh, when it comes to prejudice. Don't focus on other people's, focus on your own. And let me give you a couple of definitions of prejudice that may help get your wheels turning as to whether it occurs in your own life. <clears throat> prejudice has been defined as, quote, being down on something you're not up on, unquote. Being down on something you're not up on. Okay, do you get down on people before you discover what they are really like? For example, <clears throat> do you characterize an entire football team as being arrogant and cheats when really it's maybe been one or two football players last year who were arrogant and cheats? Uh, do you over-categorize? You know, when you're looking at, at uh, all Jews or all Catholics and stereotype what they, are, what they are like. If you're down on things and on people that you really don't know, you don't know that person, but as soon as you've got a label on him, you start treating him with that label, that's a prejudice that you need to deal with. You're down on people that you're not up on. In other words, you, you really don't know about. Another definition of prejudice is the dislike of the unlike. Have you ever called people weird because they eat different than you or dress differently than you? Uh, do you allow those externals to affect your relationship with them? then you are prejudiced. A racial prejudice is a form of the dislike of the unlike. Cliques that form in church. Many times uh, amongst young children, young, young children, there is a, a little clique that can form and it's really hard for somebody else to come in because they're different. That's the dislike of the unlike. You need to repent of that. You need to ask the Lord to forgive you of that. Uh, would you be willing to work with people at the Open Door Mission or would their personal hygiene be a barrier you just could not get beyond? Or perhaps you grow cold to a person, maybe even a friend, because they've changed their political views. You know, it's very easy to write off all Democrats or all Republicans or all Independents because we feel so strongly, you know, about our political views. Very easy to, to do that. <clears throat> but such stereotyping forgets that individuals within those parties many times disagree with those parties. When I was in Georgia, um, I actually, it's the only Democrat I actually voted for, but this Democrat had a 100% conservative rating. Many of the other Democrats just didn't feel he belonged in the party, but he wanted to be a Democrat. And uh, it was just a marvelous, marvelous uh, fellow. There are differences within the Republicans. There are differences within the independents. And so we need to make sure that even though labels are helpful sometimes, that we don't over-characterize and forget about the individual differences that may be there. <clears throat> what about prejudice against people who are senile in nursing homes? 
or people who are just a little less smart than you are, or your views of children. You know, Jesus really got on the disciples' case in Matthew chapter 18 when they didn't want the children hanging around. You know, they were a nuisance. They were prejudiced against, against those children. So don't let it be an academic exercise. Put that down. And uh, uh, next week, we're going to be looking at some of the concrete, specific ways in which we can overcome our prejudices because they don't just automatically be put off. You put off something, you put on something to replace it. Otherwise, you tend to just slide right back into the old ways of doing things. And so I really wanted to have one sermon altogether, but there was too much material in the, in the second section. But let's at least deal with uh, Roman numeral two. And this is backtracking a little bit. He shows how this is a very, very serious issue in the eyes of the Lord in two ways. First of all, because it is inconsistent with faith. In verse 1 again, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He says, don't hold faith and prejudice in the same hand because it does dishonor to the Lord of glory in whom your trust lies. It does dishonor to Him. I mean, if you think of, uh, you know, Dave Reber, if it was hard to love... Uh, Dave Reaver, in the same way, you had to get over some of the revulsion that was there. Think of how hard it was for the Lord of glory to come down and to love, to receive, and to fellowship with rebels, with enemies who were characterized by different language in the Scripture of, of leprosy, oozing, uh, oozing sores, um, a menstrual garment in one, one passage and other things. In other words, it's repulsive. There's a certain repulsiveness there and yet the Lord overcame that and He fellowshiped with us in that way. He says, that's what your faith is. That's at the very core of your faith that that which was repulsive to God, God redeemed to Himself. And He says, if you are acting totally contrary to that, you are acting in disregard uh, to the, the faith of our Lord of glory. But we not only slap the Lord of glory in the face, but we hurt each other. Uh, we're like that woman who threw her ring on the bed and said, I just can't live with someone like you who is so scarred. Do we say, I can't live with so-and-so, or I cannot invite you to dinner, or I cannot fellowship with you? And we're going to pick up more next week on what's the solution, but I want to end by saying that prejudice is also inconsistent with love. Verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Agape love is other-centered. It's not self-centered. It's something that is giving, that is sacrificing, that's looking for the other person's benefit. It's not feeling-oriented. It's action-oriented. And so James is saying, if when you give that rich person his favored seat, if when you do that, you're following the Scripture, loving your neighbor as yourself, then you do okay. Now, that's going to be a key verse we're going to look at next week uh, to counter the, the reverse discrimination that's happening in our country against majorities and against rich people. Uh, but for now, we're not going to deal with that. Uh, he's just dealing even-handedly with both sides, but here I just want to deal with the fact that prejudice is the opposite of love if it's not defined by Scripture, because love is defined by the Scripture, right? And so prejudice is the opposite of love. It measures the world by ourselves instead of by the Scripture. If people don't like us, aren't, are not like us, then we snicker, you know, we ignore them. But it's the dislike of the unlike. 
And we need to pray that the Lord give us a, a loving servant's heart. Now, next week, I want to deal again with how minorities use this prejudice issue as a club to intimidate, to manipulate majorities. And uh, 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 detailed uh, scholars have shown how uh, James is very even-handed in his treatment of partiality on all sides. But most of next uh, week's sermon is going to be looking at the practical steps for overcoming prejudice. Anyway, for today, I want us to commit ourselves to imitating the Lord of glory that we trust and that we love by loving the unlovable and by receiving those who are rejected. Amen. Father God, we come to you uh, recognizing that our lives many times are out of accord with your word. And we don't like that, Lord. We want our lives to line up with your scriptures. And I pray that you would uh, help us to reflect your attitude. And having forgiven us of so much and having uh, uh, loved us when we were so unlovable and ugly spiritually, and help us, Father, to reach out and to uh, not show the kind of partiality that is unbiblical that James was coming against. I pray, Father, that our whole lives would be governed more and more by the Scriptures and that this Scripture here would sanctify us and cause us to grow in You. We love You, Father. We commit our lives to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.